And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Welcome back to the latest edition of the Audible presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Bruce Feldman, joined as always by my colleague Stuart Mandel. Stu, we got a fun podcast today. We got a big, big time guest, the busiest person we know. Who is it? I'm so excited. We have Holly Rowe from ESPN on the podcast this week. It's going to be a great conversation. And then we're just loaded with good listener emails to answer after that. Okay, Stu, we're pleased to be joined. We have a special guest today, as we mentioned. It's the great Holly Rowe. Holly, before we get into the massive workload you have as a sports reporter, a lot of people know about your battle with with cancer. How are you feeling now, and what's the latest with it? Oh, thank you for asking. I'm doing great. Um, I, I literally just feel like myself for the first time in four years this month. So I'm almost uh, I finished chemo last August, so I'm, I'm nearing that one-year anniversary, and I've had a couple of good stable scans. So in the cancer world, they just kind of scan you and make sure nothing is developing, and, and you just pray that you kind of go into remission. So I think I'm getting close to that, but I feel good. It's, it's amazing. I'm like, wow, this is what it feels like. A lot of, uh, That's good to hear. A lot of our listeners obviously know you for your work on the sidelines in college football, and we're going to get into that a, a lot. But just from talking to a couple of your colleagues, I talked to Joe Tess this week and also talked to Fran Frischilla. One of the things that comes up is Holly is always moonlighting. It's almost like uh, they'll be in a hotel room and they'll be like, wait a minute, she's doing a game right before our game where she's, you know, when she's at an event, she'll like, hey, I have a couple hours to heal. I'm going to drive over and watch Georgia Tech's practice or I'm going to go do this and that. How uh, how have you been able to keep this pace uh, that you do? But also, you know, for Stu and I, we just cover college football. How are you able to just keep engaged and stay so connected to so many other sports while you're in the middle of college football, which obviously has long, you know, deep rosters and lots of coaches and personnel and and training staffs and whatnot? How do you how do you balance all that? It's interesting. I, I don't know if I do a great job balancing everything other than I'm a fan of all the sports that I cover. So in my free time or spare time, it's like I'm reading up on this great beach volleyball duo that probably going to be our next Olympic beach volleyball duo. And then I get to cover them in the NCAA championship. So I've already kept up on them all year because I'm actually interested in them or um, I think this might have been my most diverse year ever, and that's saying a lot just because I did so many different championships and different sports. I think I did seven or eight different sports in the last three or four months. Like gymnastics. I love gymnastics. I follow it as a fan. And so then when I get assigned to do the NCAA gymnastics championship, I'm kind of already up on everything. And then you do a deep dive, you know, like you would to prep a game, but you already have this peripheral knowledge. So I guess I am judging myself a little bit right now because I keep seeing these things like college football season is 82 days away. 
And I'm like, oh, man, I don't know who the offensive line is at Georgia this year. Or, you know, like I definitely know that I have to start doing a more deep dive into my college football stuff right now. You went through one of the hardest possible ordeals you can go through, and you did it obviously very publicly. And I'm wondering, I'm sure, you know, because of that, you got had a lot of support from people watching, from the people you cover. But, I mean, can you just describe what it's like to go through something that's, you know, that's so personal, obviously, um, you know, as a public figure? You know, it's so funny. I don't know if you guys and I have ever talked about this, but, you know, I never set out to be like, oh, I'm going to be public about this cancer. And it was just this very weird, organic way that it became public is I had a game on a Monday night. We did Big Monday at Baylor. And I flew back to Salt Lake City and had surgery the next morning at 8 o'clock a.m. And, you know, I just, because it all came together so late and you find out you have a new tumor and you just want it to get, you want to get it out. So I remember um, my boss texting and saying, what do you want us to say when you start missing games? And I was literally like, oh, no one is going to notice if I'm missing games. Like literally no one is going to be like, shouldn't Holly Rowe been on this game? So I really didn't take that seriously. But then as I'm in the hospital that morning getting prepped and all these people keep coming in asking me to sign different forms for things, they keep saying, are you the Holly Rowe on ESPN? And I was like, oh, you know, maybe maybe I should say something because people here in this hospital, it's going to kind of be public because people are talking about that. So I literally just texted our PR gal, you know, like two sentences like, hey, just thought you should know just in case anyone asks. I'm in the hospital today. I'm having surgery, blah, blah, blah like literally not thinking anything about it. And so then I had surgery. And when I woke up from surgery, I asked my son to put the um, Tuesday night, I'm pretty sure it was an Iowa State basketball game on in my room at the hospital. And I saw my name go across the bottom line of ESPN. And I was like, wait, wait, did did that just say my name? Or am I coming out of the, you know, what's happening? And it said Johnny Manziel um, arrested for alleged assault or something about Johnny Manziel and an alleged assault. And then Holly Rowe undergoes successful surgery or something. And I was like, what? You know, like, I just never thought about how that information would be delivered, I guess. But the long story short is um, it's been a blessing. Like, whatever was supposed to happen, I believe, has happened. I, I have had so much love and support. But I didn't understand the power of when you go through something publicly, other people who are privately suffering get some kind of strength from, from you sharing that it's hard for you. You know, so when you say out loud, gosh, this is hard for me right now, they're like, you know what, it's hard for me too. And I just found great strength. And I have this whole little online community of people that we've, I don't know them, we've we direct messaged on social media or Facebook and, you know, become friends and shared stories. And I hope that in some small way that's helped other people, just like their encouragement and support of me has helped me. Obviously, with the nature of what you're battling and the, the physical and emotional toll, it's on another level, you know, certainly that's one thing, but I'm curious just because as a reporter and, and this is something just from, you know, talking to people and, and reading about you, you've wanted to do since I've heard since you were like a fifth grade or something, how challenging is it to become part of the story where you're going places and people know you, especially a lot of you've been on, especially in the big 10, big 12 country for a long time. So there's personal relationships that are, that go deep, like, part of their family but how hard is it to get adjusted to now you become a story as opposed to reporting on other people it's super awkward to be honest with you like I now have much greater empathy for when I'm interviewing people and they're shy or they're reticent or they don't want to say things 
you know, I used to think like, how hard can this be? We're just talking about you. That's so comfortable. You should be comfortable talking about yourself. And then when you're asked to do it, people are asking you questions about you. It is awkward. You don't want to sit there and talk about how great you are or what you, you know, it's super awkward. So I think I've become a much more patient interviewer in my work. And it's been very humbling because I can't even tell you, I have been at games all over the country, like in the most random of places. And I'll give you an example. I was on the beach doing NCAA beach volleyball in Gulf Shores, Alabama recently. And this couple was walking along the beach, like for their evening stroll. And they saw me and they were like, oh my God, Holly, we've been praying for you. And I, and I just burst into tears, you know, and I'm working because I'm like, how, how is it that strangers um, are so kind in their heart that they feel a certain way about you that they would want to pray for you. And I mean, it has just been unbelievably humbling, but at the same time, it can be awkward. Like, you know, I just burst into tears at every given moment and, you know, people have been so sweet and kind, but it's, it's weird to make it about you. You mentioned that the surgery was in Salt Lake. I know you're from Utah, but we also obviously had a you know, Nicole Auerbach wrote a really good story in, in December, I believe, about you and Maria Taylor and living in New York. And I believe you have Southern California. How many different places do you live right now? <laughs> it's been a whirlwind. So I, I was in Southern California because that's where I ended up going and doing the rest of my treatment was at the UCLA Medical Center. Um, I was there as part of a clinical trial with the top melanoma doctor in the country, Anthony Rebus at the V Foundation actually got me an appointment and set me up with him and they assigned some of his research. So the V Foundation has been helpful to me. But then, you know, I'm from Utah. I still have a place there. I hate to give it up because that's my home. But then, you know, not to be morbid, but there was a time when it wasn't looking good for me and that, you know, I had a lot of new tumors in my lung and that's usually a deadly, deadly diagnosis. And I was like, my son's in New York in college. Whatever time I have left in this world, I'm going to go be by my son. And so I just decided to do a bucket list and use some of my savings and we got an apartment here on the Upper West Side and it worked out that Maria could share with me so she could help some of the costs and it helped her in her life where she was at that time. So we just did it. And I think it's so weird, but the cancer has really kind of pushed me into gear, so to speak. Like, I think a lot of us are just coasting and we're very comfortable and we set up these very comfortable existences and one day we're going to go do this fun thing. And I, I have stopped waiting for one day. Like, I'll give you an example. So Beth Mullins, who's one of our great play-by-play announcers for ESPN, she's getting married the end of June. And I'm super honored that she has asked me to officiate her ceremony. So I've become a pastor. I will be marrying Beth Mullins and her husband, Alan, at the end of the month. And then me and Beth and her husband, Maria Taylor and her husband, and another friend of mine, uh, Leah Villette and her wife, Ashley, my son and Maria's mother are all going on their honeymoon together. So it will be three couples on a honeymoon in Bora Bora and then me, my son and Maria Taylor's mom. You know, like on paper, of course that sounds crazy, but we're like, let's go. We're going to go to Bora Bora. We're going to live a big life and celebrate your marriages. And so is there going to be some kind of national surfing contest that you'll also be reporting while you're in Bora Bora? Will you actually take some time (laughs) off while you're there? Theoretically, I'm going to take some time off. We've all been talking about having a ban on our phones. Like everybody can be on their phone once a day and then we're all going to put them in a basket and try to just be present, having fun without worrying about work stuff. But I will tell you this, in Bora Bora, they have the world's oldest wooden canoe race. And it's like 8,000 canoes in the water. And I have for a long time wished I could cover that. But unfortunately, it's not happening while I'm there. So I will be forced to take time off. Okay, Stu. So when we see the 30 for 30 that Holly's going to executive produce, we'll know where, where you first heard it from. 
Stu, I'm going to read a quick <laughs> quote from uh, from our buddy Joe Tess. We would all talk about what, oh. you know how we're going to take it easy the next day, and she would lie to us. She would go off and be doing a WNBA game the next day. She's outworking us threefold, and this is while she's battling cancer. Joe says this with a lot of respect, but I think he's very – he was like – and Joe is a grinder. He's off you know, doing boxing here, and he's into horse racing in addition to all the football and some of the college basketball stuff he did. And all these people I talk to, you seem to be hands down the hardest working person in our industry. I had uh, read a really cool story about you, and I, I think the woman's name was Shelly Thomas. Is this accurate? When you were yeah. in the fifth yeah. grade, this is I want to be her. So from the time you're that young, has this played out exactly how, like, I guess it would be like 11 year old or whatever you are when you're in fifth grade, Holly mm-hmm. Rowe would have thought this was going to play out in terms of obviously not the cancer battle, but just in terms of the career path and getting to check off all these boxes and do all this cool stuff. It really has. I mean, I remember take good at this. I'm good at this. I'm interested in this. And then it would kind of tell you what type of profession you might be suited for. And I remember raising my hand to the teacher and saying, my profession is not on here. My job is not on here. I'm going to be a sports reporter. It's not on here. What do I do? <laughs> you know, and I just have had this very clear vision. First of all, I grew up obsessed. And when I say obsessed, with BYU football. So we were Mormons growing up in Utah, and this was in the era that BYU football was fantastic. And I mean, this is the first quarterback I was obsessed with was Gary Scheide. He was at BYU in like 1976. So I was 10 years old. And from Mark Wilson to Gifford Nelson to Robbie Bosco to Ty Detmer, Jim McMahon, Steve Young. Like if you think of all the great quarterbacks and offenses and systems that I, I saw growing up, that will help you understand why I'm obsessed with college football. So uh, I guess it was two summers ago now, I was cleaning out my garage and I found this box and it's like old yellow newspaper clipping that I have cut out all of the newspaper stories from BYU's 1980 Holiday Bowl win. And to this day, as a 50-year-old woman, I still have those newspaper clippings. And I just, I, I don't know, I'm like, that's just who I am as like a, a kid that grew up absolutely obsessed with sports. And now I'm a woman that is getting paid to be obsessed with sports. And I'm just like, sometimes I just pinch myself, like, do they know I would do this for free? Like, I can't believe they're paying me. Well, I, you know, I'd seen, I maybe it was in the same story, you had credited Lavelle Edwards, the legendary coach at, at BYU, for how he treated you, especially at a you know, in an era where it wasn't that common. And now I feel like if you grow up or you watch college sports or sports in general, it's not uncommon to see female broadcasters. Back then it wasn't. So what was the environment like when you when you really got traction in the business and, and were coming up in it? Not in the last few years, but, you know, in the earlier days of your career. Yeah, no, this was like 25 years ago. And, you know, this is how long ago it was. It's Steve Sarkeesian, who's now the offensive coordinator at Alabama. I covered him as a, as a quarterback, as a college quarterback. I covered his team that went 10-2 and two and ended up going to the Cotton Bowl, one of the best seasons BYU had ever had. And so the thing that I really credit is Lavelle Edwards and Fisher DeBerry, who was at the Air Force Academy at that time, legendary coach at the Air Force Academy. They never batted an eye and never treated me like a woman or like, like different. They were just so kind to me. And Lavelle would, Lavelle saw me walk by the BYU football offices and he was in his office. He'd call me in to come sit down and chat. And they were so nice to me. Now there were some other coaches that would look at me like, what are you doing? And it wasn't that I was a woman. I, I don't think it was just like Norm Chow kicked me out of practice many times. Who is that over there? And why is she looking at our practice? And, and he and I were laughing 
laugh about it to this day. He'll come over and pretend to kick me out of every practice I ever attend with him. You know, Roger French was an old offensive line coach, like literally one of the best original offensive line coaches ever. And I think he, he didn't necessarily know what to do with me, but he was very nice and he would talk to me. But I think if he was like, why do you want to know about zone blocking? You know, like what, <laughs> what? Who is this woman that's obsessed with the offensive lines? So I just really am grateful. And Ron McBride, I don't want to leave him out at the University of Utah. I was a student in college and would go do stuff with Ron McBride at the University of Utah, and he was great to me. Rick Majerus was my original basketball coach, and I took coaching basketball from Rick Majerus and got an A. So I just, I mean, there was this generation of people that could have been, you know, sexist or whatever. And I, I'm just lucky that they were inclusive and kind to me and took time. And I remember Rick Majerus telling me, he's like, you work your ass off. If you if you work this hard, I'll help you with anything. And he wrote me a recommendation letter that I think helped get me my first internship at CBS Sports in New York City. So I really credit Rick Majerus for kind of being an instrumental piece of my career. To, to that end, so Bruce has been pulling up all these these quotes. By the way, I've never seen Bruce prep more for a podcast interview than this one, Holly. It was, it's, oh, it's, it's, it's been, so he's doing interview. he's been doing interviews to get ready for the interview. So I'm struggling to keep up, to be honest, but I keep defaulting to the story Nicole wrote. And there's a, there's a segment in there, or there's a, an excerpt in there, where uh, you and Maria talk about, you know, kind of how women sometimes get pigeonholed into certain roles and obviously being a sideline reporter you know has limitations we hear from you maybe 30 seconds at a time so first of all i'm glad you have that serious xm show now so we can hear you three hours a day but this all came up in the context of that you and you and maria last year last preseason went on this road trip where you visited um a lot of different campuses on the south during uh during preseason camp for a, a a show that that uh I guess you guys, it was it was online, right? It was a show that you guys would, would then post on your... Yeah, we, it was just digital. It was all just digital. And um, she and I had kind of pitched the idea to some of our bosses, and nobody was really interested in it. And so we were like, you know what? We're doing it anyway. So we went and we would hire the video coordinator at Clemson or Miami, and we would pay them just out of our own money. And they would help us edit whatever stuff we shot at each campus. And then we just posted on social media and on YouTube. And I think in four days, we got something like 2 million impressions. Wow. And um, when we got back to Bristol for our college football seminar, one of our bosses said, wow, I feel like we missed an opportunity here. Why don't you guys tell us about this? And we were like, we did, you know. So <laughs> to their credit, to our boss's credit, we're doing it again this year. And they're getting behind us. And ESPN is going to air it. And I think they've sold a sponsorship for it. And I, I just really am very grateful for that because if you look at the landscape of shows, and this is not a knock on anybody, it's just an observation, is every time you turn on a sports show or a football show, it's two white guys talking about college football, right? I mean, almost every single show. And so Maria and I just would start texting each other, hmm, look, another show, two white guys, I wonder what that means. You know, and so it's just a, it's just a way of opening our eyes and other people's eyes, there are a lot of diverse people that can talk about college football. Like, I can promise you, I have a depth of knowledge and a database on college football that is maybe unrivaled with men, let alone for a woman, just because I've lived it, you know. 
And so it's just like, hey, think of us. We'd love to talk college football with you. Like just raising our hand over there like, hey, think of us. And it's not in a negatory, a negative way of like, you know, why aren't we including more people? It's just more of a, I'm having FOMO. Invite me to the party. I want to talk with you guys about college football. You know, I think that's how you and I, all of us, Stuart and Bruce, our relationships have kind of been of like, I see you guys on the road. I'm like, oh, I want to talk to you about da-da-da-da-da. And we go on and on and on about stuff we can talk about, right? Absolutely. So just, uh, like wanting to be part of it. I saw it firsthand. At the, I think the first time I met you was at the, we, we were both on a mock playoff mock selection exercise that the people at yeah. the playoff did. And you basically were the leader of the room. I don't know, I don't know who was the... Maybe an Andy Staples was appointed as the quote unquote chairman of the committee, but you 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 led the room, and I just remember thinking, man, what people aren't getting to you know people on TV aren't getting to to see the full Holly. So that I, you already answered the question I was going to follow up with, which is, are we going to see a sequel of the road trip? And it sounds yeah. like we're going to see an even bigger version of it. Yeah, and our bosses were cool. They're like, we don't want to get in the way. We don't want to micromanage you. We want it to be down and dirty and fun, just like you guys were last year. So we have a ton of leeway and freedom. But what we're doing, she and I are actually getting together tonight in New York City to kind of plan it of what do we want to know about college football? You know, so so as you guys are planning your seasons, how do you decide here's what I want to know. Here's what I want to dig into more. I mean, just as, you know, Stu and I, I think, approach things a little differently and how we cover the sport. But one thing that I feel like, and this is not intending to give the athletic a huge plug here, but one thing I feel like, and and we're all at similar stages of our careers. We're not 24 years old or anything like that. But the way I look at it is there's a lot of things. People want to watch the games they want to I, th- I feel like there's an element of celebrating some of the great things you see that that intrigue you about the sport now whether that's the people in the sport or something about the actual game itself i feel like if you can reveal that to the audience wherever it, whether it's viewers or readers I, I feel like they're gonna really want that stuff because it's stuff that is harder and harder to find and i think some of that and look holly i feel like you know, you're great at this with, with, especially with access as well. It's like, you can show, you can take somebody somewhere where they just can't go. And they're, they're trying to find any way they can into the sport. And the more ways you can do that, I think the the better ways, the better you're going to be at, at serving them. And obviously it changes year to year with who you want to cover and how, you know, what your approach is, because, and this is something Fran kind of referenced the other, when I talked to him yesterday was, I don't know how many games you probably do for Kansas basketball over the course of a big Monday or, you know, or a big 12 schedule. He said, but once you get into like that seventh game you've done of Kansas, it's not like necessarily college football where there's a, you know, you have a longer schedule. It's like, how do you keep it fresh? How do you keep it, you know, beyond just the game? You can't retell the same story. And that's one of the things he he really was effusive in, in your ability to kind of connect with people and to keep you know, peeling back the onion. And that's the thing that I think that's the challenge for all of us. I think as we do this is to not get stale and, and to keep people engaged. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I thought like, so one of the things we did last year on our road trip that I was kind of proud of and it was cool was, you know, we went to Clemson and I think it was their second day of second or third day of fall camp in August. And we see this kid, you know, we've, we've read all about all the wide receivers and you know, T Higgins and Amari Rogers and blah, 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 blah. And we see this kid and we're like, oh my gosh, Justin Ross 
is freaking unbelievable. And so in August, day three of camp, Maria and I do this little segment about Justin Ross. So you fast forward to the national championship game where he's having these one-handed grabs for Clemson and just really kind of having a coming out party on the national stage. And I just have this moment of pride of like, it makes me happy that I saw something special in this kid. And we started talking about him because of an observation in August. He'd, he'd been on campus for just a couple of weeks, you know, or another cool story we uncovered with Clemson was that Christian Wilkins, you know, their defensive lineman, who's all everything and that I could not love more as a human to earn money in the summer because he and his buddies decided not to turn pro and not get millions of dollars. He started becoming a substitute teacher to earn extra cash before the college football season started. And one of the classes he would sub for was kindergarten. And so we ended up doing this thing and Maria did a big thing on it in one of her games about Christian Wilkins at, you know, 6'3", 246 pound, huge kid as a kindergarten teacher. You know, and I, I just think these are some priceless stories that you can share with people. No doubt. And it's, it's you know, you asked about prep, like, you know, I know Bruce likes to make a really uh, exhaustive preseason camp tour in August and we watch the Big Ten Network because they go to every single campus uh, in that conference during preseason. So, I mean, I can't even imagine how, in addition to being just great content, I can't even imagine how valuable that that tour you guys do is for getting stuff to file away that you can use throughout the season. Exactly. Um, let me ask you a question that I've, I've been wanting to ask both of you, and just how do you stay up on stuff year-round? So, do you have a daily routine, or do you have a, like, every day I get up and do X, Y, Z, I would love to learn from both of you of just, you know, how you stay up on everything. Well, the biggest thing, Holly, is we don't have to follow softball, beach volleyball. (laughs) We're just totally focused on this one sport. It's honestly, it's true. I mean, I'm not, you know, I don't want to discourage you from this, but like life on the college football side is a lot easier. Like, you know, for me, there's a couple, you know, some of our peers who cover college football, they also cover college basketball. I haven't covered college basketball extensively in a long, long time or any other stuff. And so for me, it's just, you know, my approach is maybe a little different, but it's like, Hey, if I, if I'm walking to the gym every day and it's a 15, 20 minute walk each way, I make a point of trying to call somebody in the sport on the way there and on the way back. Just, it's like, you know, my expression is it's watering the garden. You're always trying to, to build those relationships and, and find out more about what's going on. But I can't imagine doing like this is a, you know, kind of a little aside. Our first week, a couple of years ago, we had a uh, our crew had a Tulsa, Oklahoma State Thursday night game and a UTEP OU Saturday night game. And it was a challenge. We, you know, we had to prepare for both games at the same time. And knowing OU and Oklahoma State was easy, relatively easy. But the other teams, especially I hadn't seen UTEP before. It just was really challenging for me to keep some of that straight. And I, I think people don't probably don't wouldn't appreciate unless you're in the middle of it, how hard that can be. I mean, you can I mean, I'm a big college football fan and all, but just to keep it straight and keep the detail and all that is so hard. So I think just I can't imagine how it would be to juggle all these balls up in the air as you're doing for me. And I, and I think to speak for Stu, I think it's a lot easier when that's all we're doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because I have prepped one one year. I did five bowl games in like a nine day stretch. That's probably the most I've ever done. And it was hard for me because I didn't it, I, I don't I don't want to mix up. Wait, 
was the kid that had 7.5 yards per carry? Was that the Clemson kid or the Alabama? You know, like, I don't want to mix up the numbers and the memorization pieces of it. So, you know, I was like, I'm not going to prep for my next bowl game until the last one's over. So my brain can turn the page and be really fresh. But then that puts a lot of pressure on you to quickly prep the game and 48 hours or 24 hours, you know. So now sometimes what I'll do is I'll I'll prep a team. So for example, this week I'm I'm going to start prepping college football teams, and I'm going to prep the whole Pac-12 over seven days, and and so that's going to be locked into my brain, kind of individually, individual teams. And then the next week I'll start on the SEC, and then the next week I'll start on the ACC. You know what I mean? In the Big 12, so that I can kind of get locked in and memorize some of this stuff before the season starts so I don't get it all mixed up. Yeah, I'm going to be pouring over Athlon and Phil Steele probably for the next couple months. But really, in general, you know, we're kind of spoiled here at The Athletic. We have this whole network of both national and I think about 25 team writers now. So um, the best way I follow college football or keep up with the sport right now is just to read uh, all of the stories that our staff is producing. It's about as useful, I think, as... Anything else I could do to prep for the season? You said earlier we're not trying to shamelessly plug the athletic, but that is kind of what I just did. No, I I, I agree with you completely, and um, I'm, I mean I'm not just saying that, but I think the athletic has become one of my lifelines for college football, um, especially the um, state of the the team. I'm saying that wrong. It's there's a, t- tell me how the right way to say it. State of the program, like you guys have these series, yeah. Every different school you go through and do these exhaustive state of the team. And I mean, I'm reading those religiously. One, I think the most important thing is I trust your writers. Like every single person that I'm reading, I have met, I know, I've seen them at games and I trust them. And so I'm reading their content with this level of trust and confidence in the content, which I think is important. But I just really marvel at what you guys have been able to do and the people you've been able to assemble because I, I mean, this is no offense to my company, but I just think you're kicking our butts and I think you're your cast that you've assembled is unprecedented and incredible. That's extremely high compliment. Right after we get off this podcast, I'm going to be um, sending you a check. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I pay for the service. I, I am a diligent user. I pay for your service. I, I think I was one of the very first subscribers. Like, I promise if you go and look at my, like, when I signed up, I think it was in with a day or two of you guys launching. Because I saw the list of right, I saw the list of people, and I'm like, Oh my God. Yes, I'm in. We really appreciate it. So we've kept you a while here. Uh, before we go, Holly, tell us everywhere people can find you right now. Okay. Well, I'm having a cool experience. Um, Saturday, I am hosting a discussion with Caitlin Ohashi, the UCLA gymnast that went viral on mental health at a mental health um, day in Washington, D.C. And then Sunday on ABC, you can see me doing Seattle Storm at the Connecticut Sun WNBA game. So those are my next two things on Friday and Saturday. So our WNBA ratings are rocking. They are up. Every game we've done is up by like 53, 63%. So um, tune in. I, I've never seen the basketball be better in the, than it is right now in the W. So check us out this summer. It's, it's awesome. And then you've also got the Big 12 show. Hey, Stu, quick, quick thing on, on, on the Big 12 serious show. So early on, I got a text from somebody, and they said, hey, we're, I don't know if they said we're launching the Big 12 uh, Sirius station, but would you like to come on Holly Rose's show? And I was like, sure. And I was thinking to myself, 
wow, this woman has the same name as Holly Rowe. What a coincidence. Because <laughs> I was like, why would Holly Rowe be doing Big 12 Radio 2? That's impossible. So, you know, there's multiple Brian <laughs> Curtises in the businesses. There's some, a couple of Gary Smiths. I'm like, wow, this woman, has that's going to be super awkward for her. Not realizing when I get on, wow, this is that Holly Rowe. She's doing this too. <laughs> Which furthers You're like, is this the, woman crazy? Well, yeah, but this furthers everyone's going. There must be multiple Holly Rose, and there's they're just they all they all sound the same, and they all seem to look the same. But there must be more than one of them because how are they doing all this? So Holly, we uh, you know I think what Stuart said is like I have really enjoyed being able to dig into stuff long form. I think that's probably the real reason I did it is I love listening to radio and I, I listen to sports radio all day, every day. So when I got offered the opportunity to try it, I, I'm not good at it yet, but I promise I will be eventually. Oh, I've been on the show a couple of times. I, I think you're, you're being modest there. It's, it's, you know what you're doing, obviously. So um, again, we can't thank you enough for coming on and, and spending some time with us today. And uh, we look forward to running into you this season. Can't wait, guys. Thank you. Thanks, Holly. All right. I hope everybody enjoyed that conversation. I know we did. She even threw some questions back at us towards the end there. And now we're going to answer your questions. As always, you can send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. Uh, I really like this first one, Bruce. It's from Grant in Birmingham. Hey, Bruce and Stu, big fan of the podcast. My question revolves around the percentage chance of a national title in the 2020s question from a couple of weeks ago. You remember that one? We, I uh, do. I do. We both had, we had some programs, pretty low percentages and he has a, he has a bone to pick with one of them. Bruce put Tennessee at 4% lower than any other program mentioned. While the last 12 years have undoubtedly been a disaster, I think the majority of that can be attributed to two very poor coaching hires and Derek Dooley and Butch Jones aside, I would throw Lane Kiffin in there as well, who have not sniffed head coaching jobs since being fired at UT. People like to bring up the, quote, there's no talent in the state argument, but the state of Tennessee has never had more high school talent. Knoxville is only a three-hour drive from Atlanta and four to five hours from anywhere in the Carolinas. The fan support stadium is no different than any of the other top seven jobs in the SEC. I'm not saying Jeremy Prude is definitely the guy, but I think if Tennessee ever hires an above-average coach, there's nothing stopping them from being a top 10 program again. Would love to hear your thoughts. Well, again, I, it's one thing to be a top 10 program. It's another thing to be a national title contending program. I think, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reference something you said probably last year. I think consistently Wisconsin has proven to be a top 10 program over the last, you know, decade. You would argue, right, that there's a difference between them being a team that can win a national title and being a top 10 program. And I'm not saying Tennessee is exactly that, but I think there is a sizable gap being a, a top 10 team and a national title team. Also, the proximity is, yes, I get that. But if you look at how, I think of the top 25 recruits in the state of Georgia, Tennessee has one. You know, Alabama, Clemson, Georgia, certainly, they're doing very well in that state. If you look at even the top 10 players in Tennessee's own state, I think Tennessee only landed two of them and none of the top four kids. So... Again, the jury is really still out on Jeremy Pruitt. Again, this is a big, big job for a first-time head coach. I don't know if it's going to go the same way as Florida did with Will Muschamp, but you know that's it's a tough, it's tough to learn on the on the big stage. And again, for people who I think would would look at what 
what uh, you know, Phil Fulmer was able to win a national title. They had a lot of good teams there, and certainly, you know, same with Johnny Majors. The landscape's a little different right now. Now, maybe maybe Dabo Sweeney and Clemson will fall off, but right now, Clemson and the way Georgia are recruiting, never mind just Alabama, it's it's much different than what than what it's been in the past. And I would argue that that's going to make it only that much harder. So I'm with Grant. And I don't, I don't I have to be honest, I don't remember what percentage I gave. I know it was higher than yours. But uh, I think Tennessee is one of the 12 to 15 or so schools that has the, the kind of institutional pieces in place to win a national title. I'm not saying it's going to be easy. I don't know if Jeremy Pruitt's the coach to do it. But, you know, I think you're underselling a little bit um, uh, the... You know, we're talking 100,000 seat stadium, ravenous fan base. They're not in, you know, some remote part of the country where there's no football talent. There's plenty of football talent around there. The thing that's working against Tennessee right now is when Phil Fulmer had it going in the 90s, Georgia was not what it is today. And so he was able to go into Georgia and get a lot and of Clemson, great players. And, and he went into South Clemson was not and Clemson what it is. was not what it is today. So, you know, can all three of those programs be elite at the same time? That I don't know. But, I mean, you know. all the things you said, you know, the, the big stadium and everything. I mean, has Penn State won a national title in a long time with a big stadium? I mean, they have they have a great history of success. It's been a long time since they won a national title. Nobody's upgraded their stadium in the way that Texas A&M has upgraded their stadium. They have a lot more talent in their backyard than Tennessee does. They've had one top five finish in like the last... 50 plus years who has more talent in a four-hour radius tennessee or penn state i mean tennessee as to georgia but again think about all the people who are in atlanta yeah that's the part of it that i think you know yeah there's some there's some access to talent but it's not like usc where you're the big dog there when you look at people who are going to say let's say it's a kid in atlanta and the tennessee coaches come in there those Tennessee kids, and this kind of references something, you know, a, a different school point somebody said. The kids who grew up, who are now getting recruited, they don't remember when Phil Fulmer was the Tennessee head coach. They don't even remember when Lane Kiffin was the Tennessee head coach. Much less, you know, they had a couple of top 25 seasons under Butch, under Butch Jones. But it wasn't like this program has had has any, you know, noteworthy success in their lifetime. Well, if you're going to play that card, I would point out that the... Taj Boyds and Christian Wilkins and Deshaun Watson, the people that were the guys that became the foundation of Clemson's, you know, dynasty, did not remember them winning a national title in the early 80s. You know, it's no, whether it's, you it's, have the pieces in place. So the question well, you have the, the right coaching staff. And that's the question. Well, that's the number one thing. And I don't know if Jeremy Pruitt is that guy. I'm trying my best to keep an open mind. But uh, the question, just to go back, remember, the question was percentage chance in the 2020s, so sometime in the next 11 years. And we don't know if by the end of that period of time, whether Dabo will still be at Clemson, whether Kirby Smart will still be at Georgia, whether they'll still be winning games at the rate they are now. Tennessee may be two more coaches in by then. I don't know. But I think if they have the right coach, they have a much better than 4% chance of winning a national title. Hey, so just while we're on this topic, if... And it was relatively close to happening because they interviewed him and had a contract all lined up. If Tennessee had hired Mike Leach instead of Jeremy Pruitt, would you have put the percentage any differently than what you had it? That's a good question. 
I might have put it a little bit higher just because I had, would have more faith in him in the short term yeah. than I do in, in Pruitt. But because he's talking about such a long time period, you know, I really tried not to include coaches in it at all, you know, because we don't know who the coach is going to be eight years from now. Should we move on to the next one? Sure. Hey, guys, I'm a lifelong Stanford fan and a Stanford alum who attended the school from 2010 to 2014. So in my four years, we were 46 and eight and went to four BCS Bowls. And we're then one loss of playing for the BCS title in three of the four years. Since then, Stanford has been very good in 2015, mediocre once, which is 2014, and somewhere in between those three times, 2016 to 2018. Looking forward, it's hard to imagine Stanford being consistent top five or top ten program again in the next few years. And given the school's history, it's highly unlikely that they will never be that good again for a consistent stretch like they have for the rest of my life. I'm 26. My question is, how, as a fan, do I cope with the realization that I'll be watching my alma mater for hopefully 70 or so years and may never see them get to that previous level again? Best, that's John from New York City. That's got to be the most pessimistic fan I've ever heard from. They've only won nine games or so the last few years instead of 11 or 12, and so he's already right, right off the next 70 years. So... Uh, I happen to be pretty well versed in Stanford right now because I'm I'm literally writing their state of the program piece as we as we speak this week. Um, you know there have been a little bit of a little bit of cracks the last few years. They're not you know, that run he's talking about. That must have been an amazing time to be in school there. You know since then Washington has gotten a lot better uh, under Chris Peterson. Washington State under Leach, and so they haven't been going to Rose Bowls. They've been going to the Sun Bowl. But they did play in the Pac-12 title game two years ago. I think he's he's underselling it. I mean, I think David Shaw is going to be there for a long time. They do recruit very well. If you look at, uh, as I did in this, their 2016 and 2017 classes, the hit rate's pretty pretty darn high. I mean, the 2017 class had Colby Parkinson, who's you know going to be probably an All-American tight end this year, two five-star offensive tackles, one of whom, Walker Little, is probably going to be a top 10 pick next year. Paulson Adebo, who was the, I think, second in the country last year and passes defended. So they're still recruiting really good players. Now, there's been a lot of turnover on that staff. Mike Bloomgren was the uh, OC and, and O-line coach for even longer than that. He's now the head coach at Rice. There was kind of a scandal there this spring. Shannon Turley, the uh, who had been the strength coach since since Jim Harbaugh got there in 20, 2007 and credited with a lot of their success, was fired for reasons that have yet to come out. So um, it's possible. It's possible that they'll go into decline. But I, I don't think it's ever, I don't think they're going to they're gonna go back to Walt Harris days, <laughs> Buddy Tevens days. I think they'll continue to be a contender. Okay. Well, I'm excited. I, I see what they do week one. I think I might be at the game where they play Stanford in a matchup of, of uh, I think I think K.J. Castillo, by the way, is a really good quarterback. Yep. And I feel like he is uh, he gets a little lost in the, you know, Justin Herbert's a guy that has had a lot of draft buzz. And as, as people have said, Stanford and John said, Stanford's been was pretty good last year, but they weren't that good. And I think because it just feels like they've lost a little momentum, and let's see if they can get that back in 2019. I'm going to drop a little bit of a scoop for you here right now, okay? All right. It's going to be in the story, but I'll just say it now. K.J. Costello is a fourth-year junior. When I was interviewing David Shaw for this piece, he just kind of without even, you know, just kind of, you know, one of those things where somebody says it and you're like, wait, did he really just say it that way? You know, referred to him being in his last year. And I said, well, wait a minute. Isn't he a junior? 
he said, oh, yeah, there's no chance he's coming back next year. He'll be gone to the NFL. So KJ Costello, likely 2020 NFL quarterback. Okay, back to the podcast in a second, Bruce. But first, let's talk about one of our favorite sponsors, Robinhood. Robinhood is an investing app that lets you buy and sell stocks, ETFs, options, and cryptos, all commission-free. While other brokerages charge up to $10 for every trade, Robinhood doesn't charge any commission fees, so you can trade stocks and keep all of your profits. Plus, there's no account minimum deposit needed to get started, so you can start investing at any level. The simple, intuitive design of Robinhood makes investing easy for newcomers and experts alike. View easy-to-understand charts and market data, and place a trade in just four taps on your smartphone. You can also view stock collections, such as the 100 most popular. With Robinhood, you can learn how to invest in the market as you build your portfolio, discover new stocks, track your favorite companies, and get custom notifications for price movements so you never miss the right moment to invest. Robinhood is giving listeners of the Audible a free stock like Apple, Ford, or Sprint to help you build your portfolio. Sign up at audible.robinhood.com. Why don't I skip down for a second? There was a question related, you know, you mentioned the Stanford Northwestern game. Mm-hmm. Let me uh, bring up a question, somebody, something somebody said to me, and that is David Sharp. You know, remember we were talking about the Northwestern Stanford game with Derek Crocker. Mm-hmm. He said, hi, Stuart and Bruce. I was sure said he was a little bit conflicted over the Northwestern versus Stanford game. I can only imagine what his fellow alumni thought. Bruce, would you be conflicted at all if Miami played at USC or UCLA? Keep up the great work. I wanted to include this just to give people a little bit of a window into, I know that everybody assumes we're, you know, super fans like everybody else and that we've got agendas and we hate your school. I just want to give a little window into this. So like I said, been working on the Stanford State of the Program, went there, sat down with David Shaw, the coordinators, uh, Paulson Adebo, and you know, I'm there probably once or twice a year because they're so close. So imagine then these guys were nice enough to give me their time. Uh, They trust me as a reporter. If I then went to this Northwestern Stanford game, sat in the stands with my friends, wore purple, and rooted for them to lose. That's that would be so unprofessional. So when I say I'm conflicted, like I don't I'm gonna be sitting there on my hands. I hope hope nobody gets hurt. Yeah, I mean the same. Look, I, I think at this point, just from covering the sport for a long time, you know people and where they are and you know, I think you want to see them do well, but your allegiance to your alma mater, and I, again, we can only speak for ourselves in this, in our own individual situations, but, you know, you may know a lot of fans at a certain school. You may have a connection to two people who work at the, uh, at a given school, but I think after a while, you know, at the end of the day, you just want to see really good games. Right. And that's, that's really all it comes back to. And I know there's, there's, you know, a lot of people in the media now who are very open about their fandom of a given team or whatnot. And that's, you know, that's their own prerogative. And they, I think everybody covers the sport a little differently. And so I, I think just because, you know, if you see Mike Wilbon is a big, you know, Northwestern guy or Mike Greenberg's a big Northwestern guy or Bill Simmons is a big Red Sox guy, that doesn't mean, you know, or you can see, look, I think Dennis Dodd is our friend who covers college football was a big St. Louis Blues fan. You know, he you know, he's happiest person in America last night was Dennis Dodd. Yeah. I've got no problem with people in the media, you know, outwardly rooting for teams that they don't cover. Uh, you know, I 
was unabashed about uh, when Northwestern made the NCAA tournament a couple years ago because I could be. I didn't cover them or, or college basketball at that point. But we are national football writers. We have to stay objective. All right. Uh, the next question I got, Stu, here, this is from Jonathan Klein. Stu and Bruce, love the show and your contributions to the sport. Thank you, Jonathan. Uh, my question is, what is your favorite books about college football other than ones you have both wrote? Stu, what do you got? You know, I'm going to go back a little ways on this one, but one of my favorites was Warren St. John. Jesus, uh, we think alike. This is really sad. Rammer Jammer Yellow Hammer. Neither one of us discussed this. And that's, that's really that's one. yours too, huh? I have two books I wrote down when I saw this question. One's a college football book. It's that one. The other one is my all-time favorite sports book, and that's Terry Pluto's Loose Balls. Uh, well, he asked us for football the, books. The old ABA. Right? I know. War, but the Warren St. John book was So mine. the Warren St. John book, if you've never read it, so Warren St. John, longtime New York Times writer, not a sports writer, and kind of what we're talking about now. So it allows him to be to, to remain an unabashed Alabama fan. He's from there. He grew up watching the Bear Bryant coaches show on TV. And so he decides to spend a year. Uh, this was the, I know I remember it was the 99 season because Alabama won the SEC title that year, but they weren't that good. And he spent the year caravanning with the people who, Alabama fans who go to the games in, in the RVs. And it was just a fascinating window into a culture that you know, I think you, if you're not there, you can't possibly understand it. Um, it was almost like a, it, it was less of a football book than it was like a sociological book. So that, that's funny that we both came up with that. Of all the ones that have been written, we both went to that. Yeah, I mean, that was the one that jumped out at me. I just, I loved that book. I thought, and I didn't know Warren at that time now i know him now but i just thought it was a great it was a fun read but it was also uh just a really good insight into the culture down there and i think you don't need to be an alabama fan or even really an sec fan to to kind of get sucked into that book so if you haven't read it go find it i'm sure you can find it on amazon but it, you know he did a terrific job with that so this is an interesting one mark from pittsburgh Hi, Stu and Bruce. I figure that at the end of the 2019 season, we will probably get a whole bunch of wrap-ups for the decade. For example, you know, the All-American quarterback of the 2010s might be Baker Mayfield, Marcus Mariota, or Cam Newton if you were Bruce. Saquon Barkley or Leonard Fournette might be the running back. Which players who would not currently be first-team All-Americans, for you know, so active players who would not currently be on that list could vault themselves into the discussion with a great season in 2019? For example... I think if Tua has a Heisman or championship season this year, he could potentially surpass those other guys. Who else would be on your list? Okay. So I didn't have much time to look at this, but I, I have a couple names come to mind immediately. And it, what's tricky with some of these guys is you get some guys who are three and outs, and I'm going to name one guy who I think is going to be a three and out, but last year had a phenomenal season, and I expect him to have an equally you know, big year, and that's Grant Delpit. He's a DB at LSU. He does everything there. He puts up ridiculous numbers across the board. I think he will be, by the end of this year, one of those all-decade kinds of guys I would put in there. You know, after that... Can I get you one? You can. Go ahead. Jonathan Taylor. People may not realize this, but there's... So, and he could be a three-and-out guy. But th here's how productive he's been in his first two seasons. There's an outside chance. I don't think it's going to happen. But an outside chance he could break the all-time NCAA career rushing record in three years. That, that's how productive he's been. So when you talk about great running backs of this decade, and obviously the guys he mentioned like Saquon Barkley and Fournette would certainly come to mind, Christian McCaffrey. But, you know, if he has a 
not even necessarily have to break the record, but have another big season, another 2,000-yard rushing season, I would think he'd, he'd be one of those two running backs. I'm going to give you another name of a guy who I think will, will be there. And it's, you kind of, you know, and there was a little bit of crossover, but I think last year Jerry Judy had a spectacular year. And I think he he's in line now. Look, Alabama has three other really good receivers there. But last year, over 1,300 receiving yards and 14 touchdowns. I expect him to have another huge year. So I would say he has a chance to get in the mix on that. I don't know. You know, we saw a bunch of great D linemen last year. Is there anybody you look at and say, okay, this guy has a chance to, to you know, because Ed Oliver had so much buzz last year going in. Obviously, the Clemson guys did. Anybody else you think is out there that is in line with that now? Yeah, I feel like all those guys either graduated or turned pro. So when you think about who's going to be who's going to be the preseason first team uh, defensive lineman, I would assume Derek Brown at Auburn, who everybody was surprised he even came back this season, would be there at defensive tackle. But who are those great pass rushing defensive ends like all the guys who from Montez Sweat and all the Clemson guys and Rashawn Gary, you know, at Oliver, all the guys that were getting the buzz going into last season. Yeah, I, I mean, I look, I feel like so much of the attention now, you, you see a lot of guys who leave early to the point where, you know, look, we can look back at Clemson. Xavier Thomas came in, he had a really nice freshman year. He's a five-star guy who I think you look at and you're like, wow. Arguably, you know, one of the guys who I think you'll see, because he put up big numbers even though he didn't start last year, was A.J. Epinesa. Yep. The biggest recruit Kirk Ferentz has had, at least in the star ranking system, was a double-digit sack guy last year. They lost four really solid defensive linemen. I think they're counting on him to have a have a have you know an even bigger year. But um, Chase you Young know, from Ohio State will be getting a lot of acclaim going into the season. You know, I'm going to stick by my initial pick. I think of the guys out there, and I think your Jonathan Taylor was a good one also, but I think of the guys out there, at least on the defensive side, Delpit's the, the safest pick to be the one who could could kind of put a punctuation on that. With the and again, it would only be. I mean, he had a he had a good first year, but it was a crazy second year, and I think that's what he's in line with for this year. Speaking of LSU, uh, James Birdsong, hey Bruce and Stu, want to touch upon a 2020 recruiting trend that I found interesting. As of now, LSU has a number two class in the 2020 composite rankings. Not terribly surprising given LSU's history of recruiting, but what is surprising is how many of them hail from D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. Two of LSU's top three players and four of their top eight are from that region. Any reason why LSU has been so successful in this area? A couple of things. So they've been successful also in Southern California. What what you've noticed here is they have really gone national and it's something where i think last year they knew that it was a great year locally so they 2019 class they felt was a good was a good in-state year but i think they looked at the map and said there's not as many players and they felt like they had a lot more reach i know from talking to ogeron he's one of his best recruiters he has is a guy named bill bush who's a veteran defensive coach who got them their best D-lineman out of Utah, uh, Apu Ika, last year. And he's had a big role in some of these national recruits. And so I feel, I, you know, from everything I've heard is I feel like their message has played well. I mean, they had their best year in, I guess, seven years there. So, you know, I think they finished sixth in the country. And I think that's they've got some momentum now. And I think that's what's playing well. And I think also what you've seen, and it's going to be interesting, is that 
Mike Loxley got hired there. You have a, a Maryland program that was really in a mired in a scandal. And Mike Loxley's got to pick up and put together a lot of pieces there. And I think until they start getting some momentum, I think other programs from the outside in, and you're seeing this, are really having a lot of success in an area that really has been picked over pretty good by other programs coming in and saying, come play in the SEC, as opposed to, you know, the success that hasn't been there for their, for their hometown team. Yeah, I think in, in just in general, you know, we, we talked on the podcast a couple of times now about this class Clemson's putting together that uh, most people think will be the number one class. But LSU's class so far is monstrous as well. Alabama's is really good. I was just looking at the numbers, and I know, you know, none of these guys have signed yet, but on the, the pace that they're at, you know, you have potential to have three schools finish with, you know, higher ranked classes than, than what is usually the number you need to be the number one class in a given year. So really strong work right now coming on from Coach O and his staff. So that's all the time we have for this week. As always, you can send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com, and we'll see you next time. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to The Audible on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a five-star review while you're at it. It helps get the word out. Thanks to Trader Joe's for being our presenting sponsor. Our producer is Nick Fink. Our theme song is Dangerous by Kevin and the Octaves. You can download their music on iTunes and Spotify. Follow me, Stu, at SL Mandel on Twitter and Bruce at Bruce Feldman CFB and subscribe to The Athletic if you haven't done so already. You can try it for free, seven-day free trial at theathletic.com slash free trial. So come on, get over here. Ah, yeah. We'll talk about it for years. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. 
See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.